Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am your host, Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Yusun Park, an associate professor of social policy and practice at the University of Pennsylvania. We're going to be uh, discussing her latest book, Facilitating Injustice, the Complicity of Social Workers in the Forced Removal and Incarceration of Japanese Americans, 1941 to 1946, which came out with Oxford University Press last year in 2020. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Yusun. Thank you so much for inviting me. Happy to be here. Uh, Why don't we begin, as we traditionally do on the New Books Network, by just hearing a little bit about yourself. What is your background? How did you become interested in social work? And in particular, how did you become interested in the history of social work? Um, Well, I actually started studying, um, I went to graduate school for the first time um, and studied um, Buddhism, um, comparative studies in, in Buddhist philosophy and got really bored of it because I went into it thinking that it was going to be out about really, how do you live, right? Um, And academic Buddhism, it turns out really, Buddhist studies is really about, you know, which monk met what other monk in what century and things like that. So I eventually turned to social work as a a more applied discipline, I guess. and I had been interested in it for a variety of reasons. Um, and part of which is that I'd done volunteer work um, teaching English and, and tutoring to Southeast Asian refugees. So um, that's how I got into social work. And then um, insofar as why the history of social work, um, I think when I was getting my master's at University of Washington, um, it just the education just uh, brought up a lot of questions for me. Why, why is social work the way it is? Um, why do we teach the things that we were teaching? Um, why are interventions that, that, they're, um, that social workers use the way they are? So the obvious answer was to really go back into history and try to figure out how we got to where we got. Um, and as I'm a Korean immigrant, um, I came to the U.S. when I was 11. So um, immigration was also an, an obvious place to go. Um, in my experience, as an immigrant in my life, um, the, the, the immigrant mythology of the U.S. as a um, having open borders and having always, you know, b- being a country of um, immigrants, um, always welcoming, um, didn't really gel. So um, I wanted to study it to see what actually happened. And, you know, in my high school, in my um, undergrad, um, 
I, I was never offered any um, information about immigration history, um, and nor there, was there any um, in my master's program um, in social work. So when I got to the PhD program, I decided to really do it myself and, and start studying it. So that's how I got interested in this work. As a historian myself, but not a historian of social work or social policy really much at all, I, and we can talk more about this, but I thought that this book was was fascinating because it was a topic that historians, at least to my understanding, have not covered very much, the history of yeah. social work. So, you know, just from my perspective, it felt to me like you were really filling a, a gap in the historiography with, with this work. Yeah, um, I mean, there are really some classic texts of, um, of history of social welfare. Um, and actually, you know, people like Linda Gordon um, have done really amazing work that talk about parts of social work. But I also think that it's really important that social workers, um, as a social worker, that more history is written by social workers yeah. um, and not from an outside perspective, I think. Unfortunately, social work as a discipline has gone increasingly more towards um, really the medical model and, um, the, I guess, um, the more liberal arts impulses that are required to really spend your, uh, more um, energies on things like history um, are have eroded, um, which I think is um, a problem, a, a deep problem in social work. So there aren't that many social work historians, um, I have to say, which is a, a sad truth about, about us. How did you decide, or how did you, what was the genesis of, let me put it that way, the genesis of this particular book? Uh, why, why write a book about, as you know, the, the title indicates, the complicity of social workers in this particular moment in American history, in the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II? Yeah, so um, I ended up doing a, um, a historical dissertation. Um, I was really pushed into it, um, and I'm very grateful about it by um, one of my professors, Susan Kemp, Dr. Susan Kemp. And um, I was doing um, a historical discourse analysis of um, the representation of immigrants in, in social work. Um, so, and so I ended up reading um, just about everything that um, three major publications had written about um, that were in um, written by social workers in these three major publications, um, starting at 1875 and really ending somewhere in the 1950s and came across just a few articles, maybe like four or five articles that mentioned that social workers had been involved in this, um, in this phenomenon, in the removal and incarceration. Um, and I was really shocked because I'd never seen this before. So I then went to every single social welfare history book I could find to see, you know, went through the indexes to see um, if um, anything had been mentioned. So, and I found that no, absolutely nothing had been written about this in, in any book whatsoever. And I then went to my professors and asked them about it. And nobody knew anything about this except for one person um, who was my dissertation chair, um, Professor Tony Ishisaka, who had been born um, in a concentration camp um, at Amachi. And so he knew about the history, but nobody else did. So um, I got very curious about how is it that this monumental thing that we did um, in this really monumental history had been completely occluded um, and that no social workers actually knew about it and nothing had been written about it since the 1940s by social workers. Um, and then I went to, there is a vast literature um, on um, the phenomenon itself. So 
from historians and, and um, anthropologists, and there's lots of um, memoirs and, and um, uh, life histories and so on that, that um, is about um, the removal and incarceration process. And so I went to every single one of them really and found that nobody really um, remembered that social workers were so um, heavily involved in it. So um, I wanted to really know how something like this gets forgotten um, and I wanted to know what it was that drove social work, which really prides itself on being a social justice um, oriented profession and a discipline. Um, how did social work get involved in this and what do they do? Um, so that's how I got into it. So, I mean, I, I think it's really important to really note that um, I wasn't writing um, a history of Japanese American experience. Um, that's been done and I'm not Japanese American, so that's not my story to tell. Um, what was a story that I wanted to tell was the, the social work involvement um, from a social work perspective. For those who might not know all that much about the field of social work, can you talk just a little bit about how social workers see themselves and what they do and maybe a very brief uh, uh, history of the field of social work leading up to the Second World War? And I know that that's a big question to ask in not a, a lot of time, but, uh, but, but I'm wondering if you can maybe just give that kind of brief overview for us. Um, I can try. Um, I mean, I think most people sort of, if you ask that question, they'll go back to um, English poor laws, but I won't go there. Um, what I will say is that um, I think it, you know, um, social work, themselves would say that it was established in the 19th century um, and that it was really to um, deal with, to ameliorate um, is a word that social work historians like to um, use, the problems that were arising from um, an increasingly industrializing nation. Um, and um, most of early social work was done and was formulated, um, in my view, in working with white European immigrants. Um, and so working in the urban setting, um, especially in, in the poor neighborhoods, the slums, um, where uh, the, the recent immigrants tended to go. So um, the social work profession um, and social work ideas and social work philosophies and, and the kinds of theories and, and interventions that came out and, and are really still being used um, were built, really constructed with this population in, in urban settings, um, especially on the East Coast, um, if you look at the time period, because um, it was really concentrated in the East and, and not on the West Coast at all. Um, and it grew out of um, Protestant, Christian, um, wealthy um, philanthropists and, and um, people who were involved in charity work. Um, and so, charities and private philanthropy that eventually grew into much more scientific um, charity work and became um, professionalized over time. Um, and in, you know, before um, this history that I was writing about, um, through uh, the 20s and 30s, um, um, increasingly professionalized and eventually going into um, government work. Um, super involved in um, the New Deal um, and, and um, the development of um, social insurance, social security, and so on. So by the time we're into World War One, um, World War Two, sorry, um, we are, social work has sort of jumped in um, and is really deeply involved in 
um, yeah, social, uh, federal, federal government work. I um, mean, I think it was one of the things that really um, shaped how social workers responded to these events during World War II, because um, the Roosevelt administration um, was a was a big supporter of the social work profession and and social work as a profession was very involved um, and supportive of that administration. So I hope that answers that somewhat. It does. It does. Yes. Um, You begin the book by talking a fair amount about your own methodology and how you went about doing the the research for this book. And if I may say so, this is a very, very heavily and well-researched book. Um, And I'm curious if you could talk a bit about the sources that you used. You already mentioned how there isn't a particularly large literature around this specific topic, but what does exist? And are there a lot of primary sources that you could use in researching this book? Yeah, um, so like I said, there's a huge body of scholarship about the general phenomenon, but not um, anything about um, social work involvement. Um, I really think I can claim that this is the uh, my work. Um, this book and my earlier um, papers on the topic are the first to examine this phenomenon since um, anyone wrote about it in the 40s as it was happening, um, which meant that it was actually kind of a scary proposition um, because as a historian, you will know this, but um, there was nowhere I could go to, to really check to see, okay, like, am I completely making this up as an interpretation or did this really happen? Um, or, you know, does this happen in the way that I thought it did? So it took me a really long time because I would have to go to so many um, sort of peripheral sources to check out ideas. Um, And there is quite a lot of um, primary sources. And one of my major sources was um, a cache of materials that um, really massive amount of stuff that was um, kept at the California State Archives in Sacramento. Um, And that was the work of, that documented the work of the California State Department of Social Welfare, um, which um, administered the removal process and then the resettlement process um, for the bulk of the population that were incarcerated. So a lot of reports and budgets and a lot of handwritten notes and um, um, accounts by um, social workers who were working. And then um, uh, the National Archives in DC had quite a lot. Um, The Social Welfare History Archives in Minnesota, um, University of Minnesota um, has quite a lot of information that you could find um, that um, not many people had looked at. And uh, I was at Smith College um, at the time and Smith College has the um, the archives of the um, YWCA of the USA organization. And they were heavily involved as well. So they ended up being a really, really useful source. And um, uh, Washington State Archives, Oregon State Archives. Um, I mean, but there were, uh, um, you know, a ton of um, regional archives for both the National Archives and other things that I did not look at, um, simply because um, um, flying around and going to archives is expensive business, and I could have gone on forever um, looking at the, the materials. Um, one of the real... Um, uh, Boone was that uh, the Bancroft um, Library at um, at Berkeley 
in um, UC Berkeley had digitized some of these records because when um, the War Relocation Authority um, dissolved, um, and World Relocation Authority uh, was the civilian agency that was built to um, manage and, and build the, um, the relocation camps. Um, when they dissolved, the, the records um, that they kept went to NARA and then um, um, also in part to um, Berkeley. And Bancroft has uh, managed to digitize a lot of it. So that was very useful as well. Um, and aside from that, um, the... At, uh, the official records um, and lots of publication that the, the War Relocation Authority, WRA, put out um, had probably the most information on and on how the camps were run. So um, I could find, um, you know, bits and pieces about the social welfare departments that existed there, but they were very uneven. Um, um, so the social welfare departments did uh keep records and they wrote reports and so on, but they varied a lot camp by camp and, um, you know, from whoever was running it, um, put different kinds. So, so, I mean, the camps were really put up hastily. And so there was not a whole lot of planning put into it. So the records actually reflected that. So. Well, let's get into the history here that you tell a little bit. And let's start by just setting the context a bit. What was the context for removal and for incarceration? How did the United States government justify this process? And how were social workers implicated in this justification process really from the very start? So um, Japanese Americans were um, rounded up and locked up um, as soon as... Um, uh, Pearl Harbor happened. So uh, the, it, initially, um, the FBI ran around and, and um, arrested people who were leaders in the community. Um, um, anybody who was a civic leader, anybody who was a newspaper editor, let's say, an interpreter, so on, as, as um, uh, likely to be an enemy alien who was going to be dangerous. And they got locked up in different sets of camps. But um, so from right then, um, almost immediately then, um, I discovered records in the California State um, Department of Welfare um, that said that they immediately formed an advisory um, committee to really look at, okay, what's going to happen? So the response was almost immediate. Um, and then um, all kinds of organizations were, well, the YWCA, for instance, um, who, which was the about the only organization um, and its offshoot. There's one uh, other organization called the International Institute, which was an offshoot of the YWCA, started really thinking about um, what's going to happen because they were the only two organizations that, that worked with Japanese Americans at the time. Um, and then um, there was a period of um, um, it was called the voluntary evacuation period, where, where Japanese Americans were told to um, move out of the coastal areas. Um, and the Social Security Board um, was uh, given some money to provide assistance for people who were going to voluntarily evacuate. So um, that um, assistance was run through the social, uh, welfare department um, in California and other states. So almost immediately involved and um, and in how they were done was that um, 
social workers who were working in county social welfare departments and state social welfare departments were lent out to um, the social security board to, um, to provide assistance and so on. But in that initial stage, not much assistance was um, asked for by Japanese Americans. And in part because few could um, voluntarily evacuate, um, evacuate as the, um, um, the misnomer um, because they were really tied to the lands. Um, and as so many of them were farmers and um, so very little money was spent and Japanese Americans had very little experience with um, welfare um, and any sort of government aid. So even if they needed it, nobody was asking for any of it. And then the other, the other part um, in the early periods that I can think of is that um, Japanese assets um, were frozen immediately. So banks weren't operating. And so mutual aid societies, um, uh, Japanese American um, social service agencies um, and groups couldn't um, process any of their funds. So they did go to um, social welfare organizations in places like San Francisco to ask them, can we process uh, money through you? so that we can actually um, help our people kind of thing. So almost immediately involved and then um, congressional testimonies, um, social workers uh, spoke at. So that was the beginning of it. And then not long, oh, sorry, continue. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Um, I was just going to ask about the, the next step in the process because not long after the involuntary removal process begins in which, as you describe in the book, social workers were heavily involved in that process as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, once the the, um, the removal process began, and that's what um, I think most people know about. So um, the uh, signs going up everywhere um, saying you have one week to actually report to be removed um, with the... Um, and, and so social work, every single person who was incarcerated um, was interviewed by a social worker. So uh, these, um, these uh, sort of pop-up... Um, places were set up where uh, um, Japanese Americans were um, asked to report to, um, and they would go through a registration process. Um, and so social workers would sit down with family heads or individuals and collect information on um, demographics and social information, who was what and what was happening, um, to make determinations about um, which camp they would go to, who would go together, who needed to go, who didn't need to go, what kind of aid that they needed. So, um, and if you've ever seen photos of people who were um, incarcerated they always wear these um, tags, kind of like luggage tags. And those tags um, were, had family numbers on them. And so those were literally handed out by social workers. Um, so tagging people and, and um, those numbers followed families throughout the entire process. And then, um, you know, there were instances where social workers had to go and get people from their homes, people who didn't report. Um, and put them on trains and send them off. Um, um, sometimes the trains and, and buses that went to the camps um, were accompanied by social workers if there were seriously ill people or, or young people and so on. So every part of the process of removal um, was administered by social workers. I want to ask what's maybe a bit of a naive question, but did you find any evidence of social workers expressing any kind of uh, uh, misgivings or regret in being involved in this process that was, you know, at least to my eyes, so baldly troubling and undemocratic and frankly racist? Did, did people express any kind of, did, 
Did, I guess what I'm asking is how willingly did people in the social work field go along with this? Yeah, you know, I looked hard um, to find dissenters. Um, and I would say, for the most part, no. Um, you know, there's a lot of hedging. Um, yeah, we don't think this is a good idea to, you know, do this sort of blanket um, removal um, and, and blanket assumption of guilt. What we really should do is individual adjudication. Um, which to me wasn't a very vociferous protest of this. I mean, there were instances of vociferous protest by other people. Um, and, you know, uh, people saying things like, yeah, I mean, we don't think it's a good idea, but we are in a time of war and um, we're going to leave it in the hands of the government because, of course, they know what they're doing, um, which is complete nonsense, of course. Um, and the the loudest protest came from um, the YWCA, which was actually at, at the time um, a really progressive organization, um, about as progressive as any organization was at the time. Um, and they called this um, a, a racist endeavor um, and, you know, uh, wrote uh, about um, wrote protests saying, really, how can we actually fight a war um, on the fronts that we're fighting and, and do this racist thing at home? Um, and, but, um, yeah, nothing really to the scale that I was hoping for, um, because, you know, it's not as if social work organizations and social workers did not know what the government was thinking. I mean, by the time the removal happened, um, the kinds of, um, media, I mean, you know, first media in, in California, um, the kinds of, um, really widespread, uh, racism about Japanese Americans and Asian Americans in general was something that was out in the world. And, and, and the government's, um, the federal government's um, rationale that the Japanese Americans were danger um, and that they were going to be um, dangerous um, was well known. So when social work organizations such as the American Association of Social Workers were um, equivocating and saying things like, well, you know, we don't think it's a great idea, but we'll, we'll leave it to the government because they know better. They knew exactly what the government was thinking, right? So it was no mystery. Um, and what's really interesting is that one of the rationale that Jeff, the, the government gave is something that's been used in other settings as well. So um, it was that we need to do it we need to remove the Japanese Americans for their own protection because the people around them, their neighbors were getting angry and um, we couldn't possibly protect them from all the anger that was arising um, um, from the war. Um, but you know, one thing I think it's important to remember is that at no time was um, the removal and incarceration of German or Italian Americans ever considered. Um, and I think I mentioned in the book a really interesting um, testimony, uh, discussion at um, the Tolan Committee hearings, uh, um, which were congressional testimonies, um, hearings up and down the West Coast. And somebody said, well, what about, you know, what about the, Jap uh, the Germans and the um, Italians and, and and somebody said, well, I mean, if we were going to lock up the Italians, we'd have to lock up Joe DiMaggio's parents, and that would be downright un-American. Um, and at this point, Japanese um, immigrants, um, the Issei, um, were barred from um, receiving citizenship, becoming um, naturalized citizens by the fact of their race. Um, the 1790 Naturalization Act, which said that only free whites could become naturalized citizens, um, 
um, was a bar that held till 1952. So yes, they were aliens, but they were forced to be aliens. But the treatment was quite different. So you can't deny the racism behind this um, history. And it sounds like many social workers, particularly white social workers, were primed to go along with this in, in short because of this long history of, of, of anti-Japanese racism in the United States. Yeah, and I think if you look at um, uh, social welfare history, social work, the history of social work with immigrant populations, um, the, the treatment of Asians um, was just really simply ignored. Um, it wasn't a population that... Um, that social workers spent a whole lot of time thinking about. Um, and, you know, the excuse that's always given is that, well, we didn't work with them because they were, you know, they had their own organizations um, without really admitting that, you know, they had their own organizations because social work didn't work with them, right? They couldn't actually access mainstream services of any kind. Um, so my own interpretation is that the <clears throat> no matter what social work thinks of itself, um, it's always part of the society, right? It's, it's always part and, and shaped and um, deeply embedded in the discourses of that moment. So yes, social workers are just as racist, just as you know, um, involved in the kinds of um, uh, problematic thinking that anybody else was um, exhibiting at the time. And really, you know, the, the patriotic fervor, right? That, 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 you know, bounding into war and thinking about all that. So social workers were right there. Um, and um, anti-Asian racism was part of social work, yes. That is definitely true. Once the United States government had removed people from their homes and, and, mm -hmm. and people were living in these camps across the American West, and not just in the American West, but predominantly in the American West, how were social workers involved in camp life? What role did social workers and social work play in the day-to-day -day life of people living in these places? Mm. Um I won't dwell on this, but just to mention that um, once they were removed from their homes, they first went to um, what are known as temporary assembly centers. Um, so those tended to be in um, places like in, um, well, in Washington state, it was um, the, uh, they were fairgrounds. Um, and um, in lots of uh, parts of California, they were uh, like racetracks. So people were literally living in horse stalls and, and stalls that were meant for, um, for animals. Um, and then from there, um, and, and that part was run by um, the military still. Um, and then from there, they went on to these long-term um, relocation camps um, which are usually known as internment camps, but again, a misnomer. Um, so these relocation centers, um, as the WRA called them, um, created by the, the War Relocation Authority, a, a, um, a civilian agency that was uh, created for the purpose. Um, so at these camps, um, at every single one of these um, relocation camps, concentration camps was a word that was used um, at the time to describe these camps by the government um, officials themselves. Um, there were welfare departments. Um, so social workers were on site um, to provide um, aid, um, uh, financial aid and all kinds of counseling services. Um, they organized funerals. They, you know, um, so anything that was happening that might be happening in a social welfare agency out in the, um, in the real world um, happened also in these concentration camps. 
So, and then afterwards, um, and you know, one of the big jobs was to really then almost immediately try to get people to uh, move out of these camps out into uh, the rest of the country. So um, resettlement um, processes were also heavily run by social workers as well. And I was going to ask that question uh, in, in a little while, but since you brought it up, can you talk a little bit more about how social workers were involved in this process of resettlement, especially as the war ended and the incarceration and, and relocation process ended and these concentration camps were closed. How were social workers involved in this resettlement? Um, you know, it's something that actually surprised me that I didn't know about was um, because, you know, logically it doesn't make sense, right? Um, that uh, resettlement, um, the push for resettlement happened almost immediately. So the camps started opening somewhere around the spring of 1942. And by the fall of 1942, the WRA had declared that um, an all-out relocation program, resettlement program was um, was starting. And because, so what it, and then even prior to that, um, people were being released to, um, to farm work um, big agricultural concerns um, because they were short of farm workers. So people were being released on temporary um, basis to go and pick beets, for instance, let's say. Um, in the Western, very Western states um, and in areas that, um, that they were too dangerous, considered too dangerous to live in. So what, what sort of doesn't make sense is that if they were so dangerous, what, why was the push to get them out so fast, right? And um, so that should tell you something about the whole process. Um, so there were these leave clearance boards created um, within the camps um, to then individually determine um, who would be allowed out. So social workers were involved in that to start with. And then um, once this um, all out resettlement uh, relocation push um, was established by the WRA, it meant that everything that social workers did was geared towards this. And the idea was to get them out um, and move them out to Midwestern states mostly um, and um, middle of the country and to the East Coast um, because they actually were barred from, um, the Japanese Americans were barred from going back to the West Coast. So how do we get them out and um, settled out in uh, the communities? And one of the main goals was to really scatter the Japanese Americans. Um, and this kind of scattering um, that the idea that you wanted to um, scatter them thinly on the ground because um, to prevent the remaking of um, ethnic enclaves um, and this problematization of ethnic enclaves as something that happened because um, immigrants, um, Japanese Americans were, um, and other immigrants too, actually European immigrants, um, were tended to be clannish and wanted to just hang out with themselves and refuse to assimilate was a narrative that was longstanding. And um, it was actually um, a, a policy um, that was used on um, indigenous Americans um, to try to assimilate them fast, right? So it's a longstanding narrative. Um, and so how do we get them out and how do we get them thinly placed so that nobody will notice that, that they're there for one thing and then nobody will protest and then to put them in places where um, we will, um, they'll assimilate. And um, so even organizations like the YWCA, which tended to be really pro-Japanese Americans and, and, and much more progressive um, 
philosophically than others were really behind this resettlement idea, at least at the beginning, because they thought this was the best thing that could happen. Um, this was the best way to integrate Japanese Americans into American, meaning white American society. So um, social workers were part of every part and it was a complicated process, uh, which we could talk about um, some more. How has the field kind of taking a, a, a big picture, maybe from, you know, after this point kind of view, how has the field of social work reckoned with this history? Indeed, has it reckoned with this history at all? Or is your book sort of a step toward that, perhaps? Well, I guess, you know, as an author, I'm hoping that um, my book is a step towards that. But um, like I said, my book and my articles remain the only mention of this history period um so um yeah and people are i mean my articles in my book are being used in schools of social work um in uh, policy courses and history classes so there's some degree of recognition um that this is something that we do need to reckon with um but i think it would take a lot more than just my own work to do this um but you know my my yeah, so I don't think we've reckoned with it at all. Um, and the, the reigning narrative really um, is to not be looking at this type of history. Um, and so, you know, whenever I've given talks about, there's one I've, or I've um, talked to anybody about this, um, I talk about the, the, the present day um, relevance of this because there's really frightening echoes of what happened um, during the war and in these camps and what's happening with um, uh, what, what's happening on the US-Mexico border um, with asylum seeking um, migrants coming in and immigrants that are coming in through the Southern borders and getting incarcerated. So, um, you know, things like, remember, do you remember um, maybe last year or the year before there was, you know, big splash of news for a few days about how um, people in these um, detention centers detention camps now weren't given things like toothpaste, right? Um, that's exactly what happened um, in the um, concentration camps that the Japanese Americans were living in. Um, they had to spend their own money for all kinds of, I mean, they were given basic subsistence, um, but anything else had to be paid for, which was um, a really quick way to impoverish everyone um, in those settings. So, yeah, I don't think we've dealt with this um, history or the implications of this history, and um, I hope that we will. And perhaps you you just answered this question a bit, but as we begin to wrap up, I always like to have my my guests sort of think big picture or top down about their book. And I'm curious what takeaways, or if maybe if there is one takeaway that you hope a reader will come away from your book understanding, what might that be? I mean, I guess, you know, there's there, there are a few things that I've been talking about um, in any opportunity that I have, which is that... Um, you know, this is some, what I just said in part, um, which is that, um, you know, I went into history um, as a study thinking, you know, I needed to sort of catch myself up, right? I needed to go study history because I needed to figure out how we got here. And then the more I studied history, the more I realized that I was studying the present. Um, and that in order to understand the present, you do need to uh, know the history. You know, how did, how did we get here is exactly um, going to really give you um, analytic um, chops on how to really understand what's happening now. So I, 
that's that's one takeaway that we really need to make um, in order to understand what we're doing and especially what we're going to do and what we should do. Um, I think in, in one uh, part of that, the book, I said something about how, you know, if we need to, if we are actually intent on doing social work in a way that at least attempts to avoid the past mistakes, then we need to know what those past mistakes were. Um, so that's, that's one part of it. And then um, I, I feel like the, in, in looking at this um, archival data, I came across this one statement by um, a social work supervisor from California. And, and he said something about um, how the use of social workers, um, trained social workers, you know, allowed this process to happen in a way that was, um, you know, doing a terrible job as decently as possible. And that really stuck with me because I feel like so much of social work history um, falls short of doing what was decent. And um, there's so many instances where we could have done so much more and we didn't. And more than that, I really feel like if social work wants to claim um, social justice chops, it really needs to think about expanding the definition of what is decent rather than um, sticking with a, a received narrative about what is decent. Does that make sense? Um, so that we really need to think about um, how do we expand ideas about rights? How do we expand ideas about what social justice is? And how do we expand and, and really challenge and decenter ideas about um, racism and, and who is deserving, who is not deserving, who is, who is us and who is not us? Um, but that we haven't done so. And I hope that something like this history will remind people that that is what we say we do, but don't deliver on. And so that, that's my hope for the book really. I really like that concept of, of expanding what people mean when they talk about decency, right? And if we were talking before about how, you know, particularly white social workers were very, they were, you know, they were almost ready to engage in this nefarious work because they were part of this society that wasn't in of itself racist, then how can social work do something to transcend the society that it is in today to create a better society? Is that is that a fair estimation of what you're saying? Yeah, and I mean, you know, I, I think... You know, it's it's not that's not an easy task, but I think I guess what I'm asking is yes. Um, how do we live up to our own rhetoric? And instead of working off of um, taxonomies and categories and and um, philosophies and and ideas about people um, that are um, that are received that we know are problematic, how do we work to actually? Um, push the edges, right? And do something different, at least try to do so. Um, so yeah, social work for, for social work to live up to its own rhetoric, then we need to challenge our own ideas, but our own limitations about what decency means. And then finally, Yusun, I always like getting a preview of what my guests are <laughs> working on next. Uh, you've been working on this book for quite some time, and it finally came out last year. Uh, what have you been working on in the interim? Do you have any new projects uh, coming down the pike that you'd like to give us a preview of here? Yeah, so, you know, this book took me way too long because... Um, you know, I thought I was going to do really a, an analysis of what went on. And then um, I realized as I was writing it that because there was no other information out there, I, I had to put a lot of information in to just establish what happened. Right. So it ended up taking forever. So, you know, I swore that I wasn't going to do another book, at least for a while, but that I immediately jumped into another one. Um, so what I'm working on um, and have been working on since last year is a new book on um, the involvement of social workers in the Americanization movement. 
Um, so which happened, you know, sort of, let's say two decades around um, on either side of the turn of the century from 19th to the 20th. And, um, um, and I think mostly we think of the Americanization movement as a, uh, a national movement that so many different institutions were involved in, including social workers to a great degree on assimilating, quickly assimilating um, new immigrants into the American norm. Um, um, Ford, company had its own Americanization department, for instance. So industry, you know, religion, um, public education, um, social work, they were all involved in this. But social work, again, um, doesn't know much about its own involvement. So the book is about that. But then as I started um, researching this and started writing it, what, I'm, what I've realized is that because social work was involved, um, because it, it's really an era when so many um, immigrants are coming and so much of what happened then has determined who America is, what America, what is America, who is an American, was in many ways constructed in that period through the Americanization movement. So I'm ending up writing a book about what is America, which is a ridiculously um, large topic, right? So, um, I keep finding myself um, in a pickle where I think I'm writing a much smaller tale and end up knowing, end up realizing that I have to study so much to know about so many things. But I think this will be a really, um, really useful book for social work, at least, you know, I think, um, because so much of it has to do with, um, it's not a past history, once again how we currently formulate um, how we think about newcomers and how we think about um, the societal other. Um, the roots are there. And, and um, just really the last thing I'll say is that, so I thought I was gonna study um, social workers working with immigrants and then realize that the roots of Americanization um, really goes back to settler colonialism. It's, it's what we did with um, indigenous populations and um, that whole notion of needing to civilize um, that population and also with African-Americans, um, the need supposedly to civilize um, um, freed slaves post-Civil um, War because um, all of a sudden they had the vote, right? Technically, theoretically had the vote. And that meant that um, there was a great deal of um, anxiety about how to make them into viable citizens. Um, and whereas we could simply say, okay, we're going to block the Asians from coming and the Mexicans and, and, and people like that, we can deport when we don't need them anymore. Um, Native Americans, um, indigenous Americans and um, African-Americans were here. Um, the country was sort of stuck with them, right? So then what do we do with them? So the, the reformist, the progressive impulse was to assimilate them. So that is part of the whole Americanization narrative. Um, and all the things, the ideas that we built then are in play today um, and in so many ways. So I think, again, I'm writing about the present, but through this lens of um, Americanization. That sounds like an excellent project. And as you were saying at the outset, uh, we need more histories of social work written by social workers. So, so I'm glad, glad to hear that you are uh, uh, diving back into the past once again. 
Dr. Yusun Park is an associate professor of social policy and practice at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And her newest book is Facilitating Injustice, the complicity of social workers in the forced removal and incarceration of Japanese Americans 1941 to 1946, which came out with Oxford University Press last year in 2020. Thank you so much for joining me today, Yusun. Thank you for inviting me. It was fun to talk with you, Steve. 